This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. The Navy's new shipbuilding plan steps back a bit from the force's 355-ship fleet strategy. The new plan calls for anywhere from 320 to about 370 manned ships. Brian Clark, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He's former special assistant to the chief of naval operations and former director of the CNO's Commander's Action Group. Brian, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. More numbers floating around here than I ever anticipated regarding the Navy fleet. What do you see in the new shipbuilding strategy? Uh, well, thanks for having me on, Francis. It's great having these talks over the years. Uh, today, the, the Navy's strategy has changed once again to drive down to a lower number of ships uh, overall, it seems, uh, but with a very wide target, as you noted. Um, a couple of the major things that jump out of the shipbuilding plan is a significant reduction in the number of surface combatants that they're planning to have in the future, uh, from about 130 in the today's fleet down to about 100 uh, in the future fleet. Uh, also, they're going to keep the number of submarines rising uh, over the course of the next 20 to 30 years. Um, so going from about 55 ships a day up to about 66 ships out in the future. Um, so they're going to prioritize undersea as, a, as an element of their new strategy. Carriers actually fared okay uh, with the number being between 9 and 11, which uh, today the number is uh, 10. And if you count the Ford when it's finally going to deploy, then, then we could get back up to 11. Uh, so that, that, that number is, is about the same. So it seems like the, the strategy of the Navy is to stick with um, the, the kind of the platforms that got them here, the carriers and the submarines. Uh, and then use the surface combatants to support them. Uh, and then the other elements of the fleet, the unmanned part of the fleet, will grow uh, to try to improve the ability of the fleet to get the persistence and the coverage that it would otherwise have had with manned platforms. There's a chicken and egg problem here, though, Brian, and actually it goes three ways. Instead of just chicken and egg, we have some other factor we have to figure out how to throw in there because we have this shipbuilding strategy that is now different, I think, than both what Congress has indicated is willing to fund and the national defense strategy. How does one reconcile all three of those things to figure out, as you said, this, we've changed it again? Right, right. And so what's interesting is there really is no strategy to back up this change in the overall force architecture. So we did the Battle Force 2045 or the Future Naval Force Structure Study last year. We did that based on a certain assumption about the national defense strategy being in place and a way of war fighting that was gonna focus on deterring China through denial, essentially. Um, this new shipbuilding plan and the reduction of numbers doesn't seem to align with that approach uh, because you are reducing the number of surface combatants significantly and, and the number of unmanned platforms from what we had in that previous uh, at that previous plan from last year. Um, so it's unclear what the strategy is. This, this fleet is probably not going to be able to support the national defense strategy as written today. Um, so that the new national defense strategy will have to somehow provide an, an articulation of how this fleet's going to operate. Um, and it seems like a lot of what they're going to focus on is using undersea in order to create uncertainty for China as a way of deterring China rather than showing China the ability to uh, defeat them outright. So it seems like it's a it's a shift from a more kind of hard attrition focused strategy, if you will, down to something that's focused more on uh, creating uncertainty and impacting Chinese decision making. One of the things that I love about having you on this program is you take me where I want to go before I can even ask you to take me there. What does this say then about what we can expect to see in a Biden administration national defense strategy? Yeah, so I think you're going to see some of this, I don't want to say reverse engineering to support the force structure that they can afford, uh, but by establishing the top line where they have, they've essentially set 
a limit on how big the military can be. And even with the Navy getting a a larger share of the overall budget, you can see the Navy is still going to shrink uh, relative to where it was expecting to be and even where it is today in some ways. Um, So the strategy is going to have to back up that and support it by articulating a way of of, of fighting that's going to be more focused on uh, creating this uh, level of uncertainty and confusion and complexity for an opponent like China, uh, and maybe not uh, creating the, uh, the ability to defeat them in a hardcore attrition battle, but instead creating enough of a, a threat or, or enough of a, a, a roadblock, that, if you will, that the Chinese will be dissuaded from uh, initiating an act of aggression. So it's going to be a, a little bit more of a whole-of-government approach, perhaps, to create this uncertainty and threat for China, rather than strictly a military approach like the national defense strategy of the Trump administration did. Megan Eckstein in Defense News writes this, those 321 to 372 manned ships would be supplemented by a yet-to-be-determined number of unmanned surface and underwater vessels between 77 and 140. As a result, the Navy's total fleet could range from 398 manned and unmanned to 512. The, the right. chicken and egg and some other thing analogy that I used a moment ago, though, leads with the money, it strikes me. You've always told me to watch the right. money. And the CNO said this this week, based on the top line that we have, we can afford a Navy of about 300 ships. Is all of this discussion moot right now, Brian, at the budget levels that we're at today? Uh, yeah, some of this discussion is moot. So I think you know the, the, the shipping plan has, has in there a little nugget that says the Navy is going to constrain the size of the fleet to align with what it can sustain down the road into the future, uh, which means operations and support funding is going to be a constraint on the fleet design, which is something that we've been pushing for over at Hudson uh, for a while, um, which means you're going to constrain yourself to about 300 and 320 ships because of the need to pay for the manpower, the maintenance, the fuel, all those things that go along with keeping a fleet operating. Uh, so, so I think on the manned side, we're going to have that hard constraint. And that opens up the potential for maybe on the unmanned side, the Navy can increase its capacity and make up for some of that shortfall on the manned side by using unmanned platforms to get the, the coverage, I think it's the persistence, or to get the reach that they would have otherwise gotten by building new platforms or building more of the existing platforms. Brian Clark, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back on the program. Thanks, Francis. Great to see you. Coming next, the Defense Department asks the wrong question about climate. Straight ahead on Government Matters, asking the right question to get the right answer. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, says the climate crisis will drive instability in some global regions. The Defense Department has several climate initiatives underway. John Congers, director of the Center for Climate and Security, he's former principal deputy undersecretary of defense comptroller, and he's writing about climate and national security in Defense One. John, welcome. It's great to have you back on the program. And you write this. Uh, Well, the the piece is titled, Is Climate Change America's Greatest Security Threat? And you write that that asking that may not be the right question. What is the right question to ask, John? The right question is, how does climate change affect all of the threats that we are already worried about, all the traditional threats, whether it's Russia or China or uh, instability around the world? How does climate change influence and affect those things? That's the right question, because it's not an or, it's an and. 
that we have to be thinking about how they how they interact together. So all of the things it, it strikes me that and not I'm not picking on the Pentagon, uh, but a lot of folks are thinking about climate as another thing. And it sounds like you're arguing it's not another thing. It impacts all of the things that we're already thinking about and working toward. Am I hearing Absolutely. you right? Yes, uh, mission assurance has been something that the Pentagon's cared about for a long time. Um, indications and warning are things and intelligence is stuff that the Pentagon's cared about for a long time. And climate change is one of the inputs to all of that. And so, so you think about it in terms of this. If uh, Russia or China is the opponent on the other side of the chessboard, climate change is changing the chessboard in the middle of the game. And so wouldn't you wanna know what squares are moving around or, or going to disappear in the middle of the game? Well, of course you would, because that affects how you plan, how you strategize. And if you understand it and your opponent doesn't, that gives you an advantage just the same way it gives them an advantage if they understand it and you don't. So the next extrapolation of that, then it strikes me, is that uh, understanding how it's also affecting whoever the adversary is, whoever it is that's on the other side of the chessboard, right? Absolutely. So think about the Arctic for a second. Uh, the, the Arctic ice is melting. It's, it's creating a whole new navigable ocean. Uh, Russia's moving forces north. They are uh, reinforcing bases along their north coast. They are thinking about this a lot. And so if we're not thinking about it, they have an advantage and they're certainly acting uh, to respond to the new environment. Does one think about climate change the same in every environment. I'm not sure that there is a one size fits all here, John. So how does, if, if one does not, how does one go about thinking about climate and analyzing the impacts of climate in each individual circumstance? Well, and that's what makes it so complicated, right? So if you're in the Middle East, you're gonna be thinking about climate one way. If you're in the Arctic, you're gonna think about it differently. Sometimes it affects uh, the missions that you're going to have to perform. Sometimes if you're at a base on the uh, South Atlantic coast, you're worried about uh, increased hurricane activity or at least uh, stronger hurricanes, more precipitation. You have to think of, think through the things in the lens of your current job uh, because it's just got to fold right in. It's not a separate thing. It's not somebody else's job. It's part of your job. So the hurricane example is interesting. Was speaking about hurricanes this weekend. Uh, and the, the fact that in South Florida, no hurricanes last year because a lot of the climate shift resulted in, that, uh, in those storms hitting in the Gulf. And so climate change isn't, it seems to me, an either or, it's a, a what if, you know, we, it, predicting where these things shift and how they shift is part of the challenge here, isn't it? Yeah, so so we have to build up our capability to make predictions about uh, weather patterns and climate patterns, and that's certainly got to be part of it. But I think it's important to anticipate the storms that are coming and to assume uh, rather than, well, what if my base gets hit by a hurricane at some point in time, assume that it will, and and to plan for that. You write in this piece about some of the uh, the base, the damage that was done, uh, particularly to, uh, to Tyndall uh, a couple of years ago, and you point out that there was more damage there than any enemy has inflicted on the United States probably ever. Um, under you make arguments about Pearl Harbor, but still, uh, fair point. I excuse me, and that's that's a, a, a terrible recollection on my part. But certainly since World War II, um, that's. This is significant now, isn't it, much more so than maybe it was even five or ten years ago? 
Well, and so there's always been hurricanes and people will argue that and that's true. Uh, but there's more precipitation, there's more water in each one, they're more severe. And so we have to assume that the damage is gonna occur. Um, but the thing is, you know, worrying about adversaries is important. Um, worrying about mother nature is also important. And when, uh, you know, in the course of a year, you get $5 billion, $10 billion worth of bills from hurricane uh, impacts and infrastructure that has to be rebuilt, you can't ignore that. And you're going to have to start thinking about that uh, resilience piece as well. How do you reduce the future bill? How do you reduce the future impact when the storms are coming? Um, less than a minute left, John. What to do about that? How, how does one or how should a group of people, the Pentagon, I suppose, analyze that? Well, you still you have to start taking it into account. So you have to start thinking about resilience in everything you build. Uh, this is every future. It's not a, a resilience project. It is every piece of infrastructure you build has to be built to to be resilient. You have to start worrying about the new environment you're going to live in, whether it's the heat waves out west and wildfires, or the new ocean you're going to patrol in the Arctic, or new dynamics in South Asia where you know India controls all of Pakistan's fresh water. This is going to affect every piece of the puzzle. And so you have to start thinking and planning for it, uh, or you're going to get caught by surprise. John Conger, thanks very much as always. It's been a pleasure. Up next, the Pentagon's latest bug problem isn't Cicada Brood X. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the Army welcomes hundreds of bugs with open arms. We archive every episode of Government Matters at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. The Army has 102 critical security gaps that it says it'll fix immediately. The annual Hack the Army bug bounty event found 238 total cyber vulnerabilities. Rear Admiral Donnell Barrett, U.S. Navy retired as former Deputy CIO of the Navy and former Director of Current Operations at U.S. Cyber Command. Donnell, welcome back. It's good to see you. You're author of Rock the Boat, Embrace Change, Encourage Innovation, and Be a Successful Leader. Is this good news or bad news, Donnell? that these bug bounties found these vulnerabilities? It's actually great news um, uh, on, a, on a remediation front and in a, in a visibility front because uh, the, in the DOD, just like any big LR organization, we struggle to find you know the best way to automate things to discover vulnerabilities and fix them quickly. And so to have creative minds crowdsource on the problem, and in this case, um, the annual uh, Hack the Army event, this is the third one the Army's done, the 11th, uh, general bug bounty overall under the uh, active Pentagon program that started back in 2016. But they had, um, you know, 40 top tier security researchers from academia, industry, the military, working for six weeks from January on um, and found those vulnerabilities. And um, they ended up paying out $150,000 this year to civilians who participated and uh, 275 last year in the Army's hack the the uh, Army program. So I think it's a good way to incentivize uh, white hat ethical hacking and to help the Navy and Army, Air Force, Marine Corps um, identify vulnerabilities that they might not have otherwise found and, and help to fix those. It's striking to me the amount of money that's involved here from the small size perspective. You know, 150 grand to find serious vulnerabilities strikes me as a tremendous bargain for the Army and for the other departments, right, Danelle? No, oh, absolutely. I mean, if you paid one contractor to, you know, kind of 
persistently poke around your network for a while, I mean, you would pay way, way more than that. So, and this is a way to get multiple people with multiple different uh, styles of ethical hacking on the problem and looking at different, uh, looking at from different perspectives and what they're going after. And so I think you get a lot of creative crowdsourcing that way and a, and a big bang for your buck, honestly, that the real cost is in the remediation and how quickly can you do that? Um, because the cost of a failed network is incalculable. Um, you just said something there that I don't think I knew, and that is that there are different styles of ethical hacking. What does that mean? Well, I mean, some people specialize in different types of equipment, different types of protocols, different uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures that an adversary might use. So if you get somebody who's really strong in one area and they go after your network, um, and they're your only guy on the network, well, you may do really well there, but maybe not so well in other areas. Whereas if you have a bunch of ethical hackers going, they're going to have different strengths in different areas and go after different portions of the network, whether it's a process piece and a privilege piece or a uh, hardware software piece. You mentioned this was the 11th round of this, basically, for the department, across the department. Is there a way to scale this? Is there a way to expand it or uh, does it, is it pretty much doing what it's going to do, the, the concept of the bug bounty program? Well, there's two things to think about here. So the bug bounties are sort of isolated events or um, exercises, if you will, or, or uh, things that they do that are for a set time period. Uh, the more enduring issues uh, are sort of like they stood up uh, 5 April of this year. DOD launched the Defense Industrial Based Vulnerability Disclosure Program, which is not a bug bounty, but it is a way to identify for using white hat, white hat ethical hackers to find vulnerabilities on uh, defense industrial based partner networks and DOD networks. And that was, uh, a it's a 12 month pilot. It was established in combination with the DC3, the DIB collaboration sharing environment and the counter Intel security agency all coming together. And they're looking at it from a policy, uh, how to, you know, they have channels to report and a process for remediation. So it's, it's more of a long-term enduring um, uh, program, if you will. And, and that program honestly has already 2000 participants already signed up. And uh, and like the bug bounty, which has found over the years, uh, 27,000 vulnerabilities, about 70% of which were, were deemed to be valid. Uh, we think, and those were isolated events that we think a long-term program like the vulnerability disclosure program is gonna do much, much better at that. The, it, what it sounds like as you describe that is that this concept is now embedded into the security posture, the security process of the department. Is that a fair estimation on my part? Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, there've been policy changes that have come out about that. Um, OMB memo M2032 came out and it said that vulnerability disclosure programs are among the most effective ways, uh, methods to obtain new insights on cybersecurity vulnerabilities and the best for return on investment, similar to what you were talking about. And um, you know we see uh, we're seeing some other things from big government, which will help us as well. Um, you know, uh, Representative uh, uh, Ted Lieu from California just recently on June first put in a, a, a proposal for a law for improving Contractor Cybersecurity Act. And if that becomes law, it would require VDP programs and participation by federal contractors. And one other helpful note was that the Supreme Court recently narrowed the scope of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act to protect those well-intentioned, ethical, white hat hackers um, from being prosecuted for investigating vulnerabilities. So we're seeing systemically that this is something that the U.S. government, not just DOD, needs to be taken care of. We have about a minute left, Danelle. What will you watch moving forward as all of these various stakeholders consider their next steps? Well, what I'm most interested in is, you know, um, getting a coordinated policy. You know, CISA has some policy they put out in 
um, the Cyber Information Security Infrastructure Security Agency put out in September, um, and they're also looking to how this works with um, our critical infrastructure folks, you know, how we would have that same kind of vulnerability program. But from a realistic standpoint, what we really need is industry to help us with commercial solutions that will automate our checking of the network. So we don't have to have specific bug bounties. We don't have to have specific hackers going after it. We can have machines helping us with that and automating it and automating the responses, even to the point where they can calculate in what would the operational impact of that be if we did that? Because sometimes for operational reasons, you can't shut down a network to remediate something, something's too important. So, you know, how do we use automation to help us with that and get to a zero trust environment? That's really what we need. Danelle, thank you very much as always. It's great to have you back. Thank you very much for having me, appreciate it. If you didn't catch an episode of Government Matters, you can find all of our shows at govmatters.tv. You get a preview and a recap of every show. When you sign up for our daily newsletters, you just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes 
offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, "Here's what I want. Here's what I want. To, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years." Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned. You ought to stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.